0: Isaiah 43 for our Old Testament reading. This is a passage where it is clearly shown that God alone forgives sin, which is something we'll consider in the sermon texts, a claim that Jesus makes as the one who can forgive sin. And thus, something like this would have been in the background of those who hear Jesus and the scribes who challenge Jesus. Uh, this may have been one of the passages in their minds that, um, we know from Scripture that God alone forgives sins. Of course, we know that in doing so, Jesus is claiming himself to be God, but we give our attention to this reading of Holy Scripture, Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 8 and reading through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior." I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand, I work and who can turn it back. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice." I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense you have not bought me with you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices but you have burdened me with your sins you have wearied me with your iniquities I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case, that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And then the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we begin today with chapter 9, as we continue going through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, once again, God's holy word. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow once more in prayer. Great God, we come humbly before your word, and we ask that what we do not know you would teach us, what we do not have you would give us, and what we are not you would make us for your Son's sake. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, human beings need to be redeemed we need forgiveness and redemption. We need redemption not just in the sense that it must objectively take place, though that is certainly true, but also there is a a need for redemption that is planted deep within us as those created by God as His image. The great theologian Herman Bavinck spoke of this deep-rooted sense of the need for redemption when he pointed out, though religions are all very different in their own sorts of ways, and they operate according to different principles very often, it is redemption in some sense that is aimed at in all of them. So he writes this, There is difference about the nature of evil from which redemption is wanted, about the way in which redemption can be attained, and about the highest good that men should strive for. But all religions aim at the redemption from evil and at obtaining of the highest good. In religion, the biggest question is always, what shall I do to be saved? Precisely that which cannot be obtained by culture or civilization, by having dominion over the earth, that is the thing sought for in religion. Lasting happiness, eternal peace, perfect blessedness. In religion, man is always concerned with God. It's somewhat interesting in, in our time that in a culture where uh, belief in God has sort of faded and you've had the creep of, of modernism and what you might call the, 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 new, the new atheism, and belief in God has become less than assumed, this quest for redemption really in our day has largely been relocated to, uh, to culture itself. The modern religion of progressivism is an outgrowth of beliefs that that God does not exist, and yet redemption is still something that must be obtained. So cosmic justice is something that needs to be achieved in the culture. And that's something that we should think about in our day a little bit. And, And though cultural religions, false religions of the culture, can be very frustrating, we ought to see them as evidence of of God, of God's creative power, of God's sustaining power, and this, this sense, this deep-rooted sense in the human heart of the need for redemption. Bavink goes on, he says, when you see this, when you see this operating in people, that though they may not know Christ, though they may not uh, be professing Christians or, or know the heart of the gospel, there is this sense deep within humanity that we need to be redeemed and we need to experience and know redemption. He says, when you see that, it illustrates that God has not entirely left the human race to its own ways. It is an eradicable hope. And it enables men on their long and fearful journey through the world to keep living and working. Our hope then must be that at some point in that journey, man's eyes are opened to the reality of the gospel. To see and find the only place or the only person where true redemption can be had, of course, in in Jesus Christ. And we see that on display here in our text today. We see the authority, the Lordship of Christ put on display as the God-man who forgives sins and who provides that redemption that the human heart senses that it needs. And the question posed to us from this text is, do we have the faith that sees Jesus in the way that he is presented to us by the faithful in this passage there are those who bring the paralytic to Jesus and Jesus sees that faith do we have the faith that sees Jesus aright and the faith that sees Jesus who is at work here and always so our first idea today is this Jesus sees faith secondly the scribes see blasphemy thirdly do you see Jesus Jesus sees faith the scribes see blasphemy. Do you see Jesus? First, Jesus sees faith. Jesus sees faith. This is a famous story in, uh, in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke. In the other two Gospel accounts, in Luke and in Mark, this is the account where the man is lowered through the roof. We read in Mark chapter 2, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, many were gathered together so that there was no more rooms. You have a full house there, not even at the door, he was preaching the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay." Matthew leaves these details out. You always, when you're carefully studying, studying the Gospels and kind of trying to bring them together, one of the questions that should be operative in our minds is, why does Matthew present the story to us the way that he does? So you have the, the, the drama of the, the paralytic being let down through the roof. That's left out. There may be various reasons for that, the, what uh, who Matthew is talking to or, or what he has, the accounts he has before him that he's working with. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, that is not included in Matthew's account. So why? What comes forward? What is highlighted then in Matthew's account? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? You remove the, the drama of the paralytic being lowered down. Really, what we're left with is Jesus. Jesus. It highlights the Savior, just like the account with uh, the demoniac when he comes across the Sea of Galilee into the region of of the Gadarenes. Much of the drama of the the demon-possessed men is left by the wayside to bring forth Jesus so that we focus on his person, his power, his compassion, and the salvation that he brings. This is really the theme of the Gospel of Matthew, leading to Peter's profession of, of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's what, what the Gospel of Matthew is posing to us. What does the human heart do with Jesus? What does the human heart believe about Jesus? Or as we see in today's passage, perhaps the more important question is, what does Jesus do with us as those who are weak and paralyzed and dead? in our sin. But Jesus sees the faith of those who bring the paralytic to him. He sees their faith, which is certainly worth worth noting, And what is it that he sees? What is it that the paralytic and those who carry him, what what are they exercising? They're exercising belief and trust that Jesus is the one that this man needs. No matter how they may describe that, no matter how they may answer why specifically they're bringing this man to Jesus, they believe and trust that Jesus is the one that this man needs. No one else. They have found the one that this paralytic needs. They are confident So they act confide, with faith. And we see that faith is pleasing to God. We remember the account with the centurion where Jesus commends the faith of of the Roman centurion. Faith is pleasing unto God. We read in Hebrews 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is pleasing unto God. So Jesus then rewards this man with a blessing. And what is that blessing, the, the blessing that he gives to this man? Well, he gives him forgiveness. He forgives his sins. We are not told, as I mentioned, we're not told what's operating in the minds and hearts of the paralytic and those who bring him. Though our natural instinct is they're bringing this man to Jesus to be healed of his paralysis. That's, that's our instinct mostly as we, as we read the, the passage. That perhaps is more of a commentary on us, isn't it? That we, we always tend to focus on the material, the physical, rather than the invisible. It may be that this man begged to see Jesus because he wanted forgiveness, but he has no way to go to Jesus. He has no way to get to him in his own strength. But certainly this account is one of those instances, as we often see in the gospel, where salvation and forgiveness is so closely linked to Jesus' healing power. They're so closely connected as to almost be synonymous. Jesus' salvation and his healing are his salvation and his healing. And yet we are forced to see in this passage how one of them serves the other, aren't we? And which one serves the other? Well, the physical healing serves to show and highlight the wonder of forgiveness of sins. So what do we make of just initially as we think about this passage, what do we make of Jesus seeing the paralytic? And obviously, if we were to see such a person, that would be what strikes us, that, they, that they're paralyzed, that they have limited movement, and yet Jesus grants this man forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. What do we make of that? Well, a few things. Let's reflect together. The first is this, Jesus knows what we truly need. We come before God, we come before his word, we come before his sovereignty, we come before his authority as sinful human beings, as flawed and finite human beings who do not know all. Do we submit to the reality, the truth, that God knows what we need and he knows what we need even better than what we know ourselves. Jesus, as the God-man, knows what this man needs, and he acts in accordance with that. He knows what he needs. Jesus is supremely wise and just and good. He does nothing that is wrong. So if our hearts were to say, boy, it would make more sense for you to, to heal him of his paralysis, then say he's forgiven, do we submit to the truth that God is supremely wise and just and good. He does nothing wrong. He makes no mistakes. Lastly, there is no blessing, and this confronts our hearts too, there is no blessing in all of the universe like having your sins forgiven, like having the salvation that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no blessing like that, and this passage puts that before us. And, and causes us to wrestle with it. Psalm 32, how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We, we, we joyfully agree with that in our hearts, but, but do you understand in Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, where we find those verses, that it's making no commentary on the other circumstances of the person's life. That if their sins are forgiven, no matter what else might be true of them, of their lives, of their circumstances, they're blessed. They have this wonderful blessing from God. As we confess this morning, since we, have, since we have been justified by faith, we've had our sins forgiven, been declared righteous before God, accepted before him in Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is that one thing, as we mentioned in the beginning, that the human soul Needs. Jesus then reorients our hearts to that truth more than anything else. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. We convince ourselves, don't we, that what we want is comfort and ease. We want pleasure and freedom from pain. But we need forgiveness far above all else. We need salvation. We need to be freed from the terror of the law, the terror of condemnation. That's what we truly need. And Jesus teaches us just that in this passage. As we have our hearts reoriented to that truth, reframed and reformed unto the realities of of, of spiritual things, that then allows us to live in the comfort of the gospel, And what does it mean to live in the comfort of the gospel? It means that no matter what those circumstances are that might be outside of this blessing of forgiveness and salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, you are to rejoice. You are to be at rest, be at peace with the God who has forgiven you. You are to uh, trust him and rely upon him. In this world we are always headed for death the sting of death the pain of suffering and affliction often comes to us but to live in the comfort of the gospel is to know that there is no blessing that is like unto redemption in Christ it's the comfort of Christ alone and Jesus does not promise us freedom from pain and suffering does he but he has promised us freedom from guilt in him. So to go back to quote Bavink again, he says, In Christ, in forgiveness, there is no ground whatsoever for discouragement and despair. Everything certainly shall be as God in his wisdom and love determined it. His almighty and gracious will is the guarantee of redemption of mankind and the rescue of the world. In the great afflictions, the great afflictions of life, our hearts therefore remain at peace with the Lord. So reflect together, beloved people of God, in your hearts. Would that be enough for you to be forgiven, to be redeemed? So often we operate with these assumptions. I know I do. I'll openly confess to you, operate with this assumption that if I generally serve God, I know that I, I, I'm, I'm far from perfect, but if I generally try to serve God and worship him and love him, that in some sense he probably owes me a, a life of relative ease, of, of, of peace in my family, in my relationships, of general health moving forward. We know that things can happen, but we sort of expect that, don't we? And where is that promise to us? It's promised to us nowhere. And the question for our hearts is, is redemption in Christ enough? Because Jesus heals this man, and his sins are forgiven, but he's still paralyzed, isn't he? And that has to be enough for him, and that has to be enough for us as well. And I know that that's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing for us to wrestle with. But if all else were removed, and you had Christ and nothing else, would it be enough? Would it be enough? It has to be. It has to be. Jesus sees faith and he grants this wonderful blessing of forgiveness. The scribes see blasphemy and they see blasphemy because God alone forgives sin. Now we we, uh, thought about this a little bit last Sunday evening as we thought about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We did briefly touch on the truth that human and divine forgiveness are two different things, didn't we? We are called to forgive as God has forgiven, but it's different. When we forgive, what do we do? Well, one, one commentator puts it this way. When a human being forgives another, we earnestly resolve to not take revenge, but instead to love the one who has injured us, to promote his welfare, and never again to bring up the past. That's what it means for, for us to forgive. Don't hate, but love the person, promote his or her good, and never again bring up the past. Move on and forgive from the heart. But what does it mean when God forgives sins? It's, it's different, isn't it? Because for God to forgive sins means that he wipes away the guilt of sin and the attending punishment that ought to be carried out by a just God. He wipes it off the slate. Micah chapter 7, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In terms of the justice of the universe, those sins cannot be brought up against us. That's what it means for God to forgive. Colossians chapter 2, he, uh, he crosses out, cancels the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross of Christ, that truly your sins are in every sense wiped away from the consideration of God's justice. That's what God does. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the scribes bristle up at this. Blasphemy was a a debated topic at that time, but certainly to do something that God alone would do, that would qualify as as blasphemy. And the scribes here are on to something. If Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins and to do something that God alone can do, if he is wrongly claiming that, then he is blaspheming. Perhaps just as importantly, it topples his entire ministry and work. Jesus is either a blasphemer or the Savior who is God, man, and Lord. It brings forth a certain choice, choice with Jesus. We, we don't have the convenient option as so many people tend to want to do. They want to hedge with Jesus. They want to be a respectable human being. So they say, well, he's a great prophet. He's a great teacher. He's sort of in the pantheon of great prophets. I would know, think of him like Buddha or Gandhi. Or uh, there are all kinds of, of great lessons to be had around the religions of the world. Jesus is kind of, he fits among those. And I really like the, a lot of the teachings of Jesus, especially a lot of, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. You hear people talk about him this way. But you don't have that com- convenient option with Jesus. He is liar, he is lunatic, or he is Lord, to use the argument of, of C.S. Lewis without commenting on his, his own uh, apologetic methods. He's liar, he's lunatic, or he is Lord. Jesus is either a fraudulent swindler or he's a forgiving Savior. He is either a crazy man or he is the God-man. He can either demand your all or he can ask for none of it. That's what we have to do with Jesus. So is he blasphemer or is he a savior? The scribes were onto something here. If Jesus is lying, he's blaspheming. And so that confronts us with the question, do we see Jesus? Do we see him as he is? Do we see the truth about him? Do you see Jesus? So the main point of, uh, that we'll focus on in the remaining few minutes this morning is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, which he proves with this miracle. He proves that he has the authority by doing this miracle, but it's also a reminder that he bears sin on our behalf. He asks this very interesting question, which is more uh, difficult to say? Well, what's the easier thing to say, you are forgiven, or to say, rise and, and walk? I thought about this a lot and it was surprising how much scholarship is kind of on both sides, (laughs) that there's disagreement about what Jesus is implying is easier or more difficult to say. Uh, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that is not falsifiable. You, You cannot in the moment prove that he is lying. It's easier to say that, whereas if you were to say rise and walk, if it does not happen right in front of you, then you know that he's a fraud, swindler. These claims that are not falsifiable, it's it's a common trick, isn't it? Maybe you remember Harold Camping about 11 years ago. He had this entire ministry built around the return of Christ is going to be May 21, 2011. There was a big deal about it kind of brought up in the news and everything. And so it doesn't happen. And then what does he say? Well, he says, well, it was an invisible judgment day. It was a spiritual rapture, right? He, he, he shifted his claim to something that was not falsifiable. It's a common swindler's trick. So one thing may be easier to say, but it actually brings forth a different question if you reflect about it. One may be more difficult to say, but one is actually more difficult to do. Which would be more difficult to do, to say, rise or to to actually effect healing or to actually wipe away sin. Well, it, it seems to me the more difficult thing to do is to actually forgive sin because if God is just, forgiveness must be in accord with his justice. Jesus can't just say your sins are forgiven and sort of the transaction magically happens right there. Something else needs to be going on. And what's going on behind Jesus' proclamation that your sins are forgiven is that he is bearing the sin of this man in his body. Body. Jesus is bearing sin so that he might say to this man, your sins are forgiven. The Heidelberg Catechism says his whole life was one of suffering. It led up to the cross, but his entire life he was suffering and bearing the sins of humanity. Moreover, Jesus must render unto God a, a life of righteousness so that our peace with God would not just be one that is negative, that your sins are wiped away, but also positive. There has been a life lived before God on your behalf that from beginning to end was righteous and obedient and it was the life of Jesus Christ. You see, it may be easier to say your sins are forgiven, but in this sense it's more difficult to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. It makes our hearts overflow with gratitude. Just as as this man, uh, as the the paralytic who receives this forgiveness declaration, when we hear that, do we rejoice. Richard Sibbs says, Think what great love Christ has showed unto us and how little we have deserved. This will make our hearts melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. Does forgiveness in Christ make your heart melt in love and devotion to the Savior? But Jesus gives the attending miracle. Why? Well, he tells us. He heals this man so that we might know that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. One is perhaps more difficult to say, another is perhaps more difficult to do, but they both require divine, omnipotent power. But if Jesus can do the one, he can do the other. That's the the overarching point. If he can do the one, he can do the other. So this miracle becomes an invitation. It is an assurance to all of the people who witness it, as they witness this going on, that Jesus is where forgiveness can be found until the door of grace is closed. It's an invitation to exercise faith and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's also a reminder of how salvation happens. The divine Lord of the visible and the invisible, the one who creates life out of nothing, the one who can reform the central nervous system of a paralytic, he is the one who authors salvation from start to finish. Indeed, we do not stand over Jesus and decide whether or not he's a suitable Savior for us. Rather, we are like the paralytic that must be carried to Jesus. If we do make it there, it was not our friends bringing us. It's God himself. You see, do we come to Jesus or does he come to us? The paralytic had to be brought to Jesus, but Jesus was already there. He came to earth in order to bear sin. He came to earth in order to seek and to save the lost. And this is the reality of of Christianity, isn't it? That the heavens open to us, God comes down to us in the fullness of grace, in the fullness of redemption. That only happens in the gospel. Other religions may have revelation, they may have liberation, they may even have forgiveness to a certain extent, but the way grace is embodied and salvation is merited and full communion with God is granted in Christ is something that you will find nowhere else. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. So do we come to Jesus or does he come to us? It begins with divine action. So if you are trusting in Christ today, you must know that his sovereign grace has brought your paralyzed spirit to himself. If you are walking in the ways of the Lord, the life that pulses through your veins is the life of Jesus Christ which is worked in you by the grace of God. So believer, unbeliever, do you see Jesus? If you do, come to him, for if you come to him, he has already brought you to himself. That's the wondrous mystery of God's sovereign grace. If you come to him, he has already brought you to himself, cleansing you, establishing you, giving you the life to walk in the ways of the Lord. We give thanks to the Lord for his wonderful gospel and a God God man so powerful as one to be feared they fear Jesus at the end of this passage and we are to fear Jesus not in terror but in a filial fear a family fear rejoicing in the glory that we see at the end of this passage that God has given such power to a man a God man but a man for without that powerful God man we have no hope of salvation let's pray O great God, we cast ourselves down before your majesty. We're conscious of our faults. We pray that we may truly see them as they are, renounce the foolish opinions which once deceived us and uh, with which the enemy has continually kept us um, in many ways blind to them. Let us lay hold of the infinite kindness shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And since he so... Mildly and mercifully invites us to come to him. Let us learn to obey him and to, have to be done with all that hinders us. O oh God, would you bring us low so that we might be lifted up by your powerful hand. And may Jesus lead and govern us all the days of our lives. May our confidence never waver, but be firmly fixed on him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We respond... By singing number four twenty four, just as I